The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org. I'll let you know when I figure out what global leadership is, but um, <laughs> that's right. Um, I wanted to start reading from uh, the introduction to this book, John Locke, Writings on Religion. This is, so this is by the editor, Victor Nuovo, speaking about Locke's religious writings. He says, they should make clear that Locke's interest in religion and theology was neither peripheral nor pursued merely for the sake of appearances. The industrious manner of his pursuit of various theological questions and his ongoing engagement in biblical studies should dispel all suspicion about the latter. Rather, we discover here that religious concern was one of the main determinants of his intellectual pursuits, so that his various philosophical inquiries inevitably impinge upon or lead back to theology. In light of these conclusions, it is perhaps appropriate to consider Locke not merely as a progenitor of the Enlightenment, but as one of the last of the reformers. So I'm going to throw that out there. Um, I, I brought this, so um, if anyone wants to peruse, you can see more of, of uh, where Locke goes with his theology in his, his writings. Okay, I should also start by saying that the only B I got in graduate school was in a class on Locke. So <laughs> I wrote a paper, and the, my professor, Thomas West, did not like it. This is not that paper. This is a different paper. But um, anyway, I feel like I need to give that caveat there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I noticed a tweet the other day that said, um, reading list for the month of June, and there was a rainbow background. And it was Romans 1, Romans 1, Romans 1 for every day of the month. So I'm going to be giving you Locke's reading of Romans 1. So this is appropriate here for, um, for our, our, our liturgical calendar as it is. Um, so so Locke, John Locke, uh, he's everybody's punching boy right now, it seems. Uh, everybody from all different worldviews, you might say. Uh, blame Locke for the state that our culture is in and his debauched character. 
Protestants, from Peter Lightheart to Romans, like Rusty Reno, Patrick Deneen, and uh, even Jews like Yoram Hazoni, are all blaming Locke for the state of our culture as it is now. Um, and uh, they usually point to his essay concerning human understanding and his two treatises uh, on a civil government. Um, this despite the fact that in Locke's uh, second treatise, he, he talks about a, a very important distinction, that even in the state of nature, uh, he says it's a state of liberty, but it is not a state of license. So he assumes a distinction by which we can determine what is liberty and what is an abuse of liberty. And, and so uh, when we're looking at the state of, of culture today, and we want to blame it all on Locke, it seems as though that distinction has been collapsed uh, and where anything can be liberty. So my question uh, is, uh, arises from this. Um, is there truly a objective standard in Locke's philosophy by which we can distinguish true liberty from license? Uh, this is a hard question to answer because um, careful readers of Locke, and I, I come from a sort of Straussian background of where they've, you know, Strau Lil Strauss and his students have done a lot of careful reading of Locke. Um, they say generally um, that if you look at Locke's uh, law of nature, which is the standard that he always refers to, uh, if you read it carefully and maybe close one eye and skip every other paragraph or something, you'll see that uh, what he means by a law of nature is really nothing other than a kind of law of self-preservation, which would make him basically Hobbes. So uh, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is Locke basically Hobbes? Or is there a really important difference? And I think that uh, if we can figure this out, uh, then we can say, no, there's an important difference between these two thinkers. Uh, it did not occur to me, uh, I did not know, that Locke wrote a paraphrase and notes on several of St. Paul's epistles. I discovered this kind of late in graduate school because no one ever talks about them. Um, but we're all familiar with the message. Well, Locke wrote the first the message, uh, in fact. Uh, and so I, I brought this here for people to look at because it's a fascinating book. What he does is he takes the King James and he, he writes his own paraphrase. And then he supplies notes to explain why he, why he emphasized certain things or changed certain things from the King James. And he's got the Greek right there. And there, it's just a fascinating read. So um, I encourage you to take a look at this. And what I'm, what I'm hoping to do is to, in the spirit of uh, Davenant and the, uh, to usher us toward the, uh, the sources, I, I want to suggest that Locke might be an, uh, an important source to consider. And that there might be some things here that could help us understand uh, St. Paul and Christianity altogether. Uh, he always claimed to be an Anglican Christian, uh, and his teacher at Oxford uh, for a significant portion of his early life was John Owen, in fact, whom he thought was too liberal, <laughs> which I find very funny. Um, Time and Klein is, is going to be doing a little bit more digging on this, so he might be able to push back on this a little bit, but, but the way I see it, at least from the letters that I've read in the biography on Locke, is that uh, Locke sees uh, John Owen as too religious, especially regarding, uh, sorry, too liberal regarding religious liberty. Again, we should find this surprising. Okay, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Timon will find something that I, I haven't found yet, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, okay, so in order for us to accept the claim that Locke is the original cause of so much disorder and moral corruption and heresy, we must conclude that either he was not genuine in his profession of faith, or else that he was very naive not to realize that he held heretical opinions that contradicted the Christian faith he claimed to hold. 
The first position assumes that Locke was a bad man, in fact, a liar. And the second, that he was a rather stupid man. And, and both of these conclusions seem to me to presuppose that Locke was not very serious about his Christian faith, or at least was, was such a philosopher that he placed his faith first and foremost in his own capacity for reason to a degree that distorted any sense of reliance on faith that he, that he might have otherwise. Now, it's a fool's errand to try to get inside the, the head of Locke and, and try to discern his real intentions. Uh, and a lot of people do that, and I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, I, he, he always said he was a, a devout Anglican, and um, though there were laws at the time where he had to affirm the Trinity, and so even if he had doubts about that, he would have to cloak them, and I understand all, all of that. But uh, I want to take him at his word and, and read what he says and measure and, and evaluate on his, own, on his own words. So I want to do that. That's my, that's my approach. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, I can complicate, at least, the confidence of those whose assurance of Locke's apostasy or naivete outstrips their familiarity with Locke's theological writings. Uh, and if you look at the people who criticize Locke, they, they never cite this. You wouldn't know that this book was even written. Uh, or his reasonableness on Christianity, though some people cite that more, but most of the people who are the, the, the critics of liberalism and point to Locke as the cause of all that, um, they, they, only, they don't cite his theological writings. Um, if they don't take him seriously. So I'm suggesting we take him seriously and see what he has to say. Uh, and as the, I, I would agree with the editor that if you look at the depth um, and the breadth of Locke's writings on theology, I just don't buy that he was just merely keeping up appearances uh, or concerned with his legacy. So, um, so, so that's, uh, that's where we go. Now, uh, I, I'm gonna, the way I wanted to get at the, at the uh, question that I posed earlier, is there some objective standard by which we can discern true liberty from license in a, in a moral sense, is I thought, well, when I discovered that he'd written on a commentary on um, Ephesians, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, and Romans, it hit me, well, then if he's written on the f- first chapter of Romans, then he might have something to say about the universality of guilt on mankind that the St. Paul describes there. Um, here's the big caveat. Um, this is a very hard book to discern Locke's true opinions from because he's summarizing St. Paul. And he says that this work began as just his private study, uh, something that he was interested in, and it was, it was published posthumously. Um, now, his notes are, are, are clear where he's saying, I did this for this reason, I changed that thing for that reason. So it is possible. It's just difficult. So um, I'm not claiming that it's an easy thing to do to just read what, what, even the paraphrase of what Locke's saying here and to say, yes, that's Locke's, that's Locke's opinion right there because he's summarizing St. Paul. So with that caveat, um, wanted to um, get into his understanding of, of what, what Paul's doing in, in Romans 1. Um, one other thing I'll say about, about this work. He has an essay at the beginning uh, in which he lays out a, a, a sort of a method for how to read St. Paul, which I find really fascinating. And it's a short essay. Uh, if you're interested in just Locke's understanding of St. Paul, you can, you can find it. Um, and then at the beginning of each, uh, uh, each epistle, he writes a synopsis. And then in some of them that are shorter, or they're longer rather, he writes sections, and he writes little introductions to each of them. So there's just a lot to mine uh, in this work. Um, one of the things that's, there are a lot of problems with natural law that, that Locke deals with. One is the variety of opinions uh, that mankind has uh, on, 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 uh, on natural law. Um, somebody that, that 
that uh, Locke is dialoguing with a lot is, is Richard Hooker. Um, and there's, here's a, one place that I saw some similarity. R- Richard Hooker also notes that uh, man's natural understanding can become so corrupt that, quote, whole nations have been unable to recognize even gross iniquity of sin, unquote. And for this reason, Hooker argues that it's necessary that God provide the revelation of his law to mankind through the Jews, so that, quote, by this law we know even secret lusts to be sinful, and we fear to sin even in a wandering thought, unquote. But what of those who, who, who never knew this revealed law? Why should they be held to the same standard? Does awareness of culpability finally arise from, quote, the light of nature, a phrase that Locke uses a lot in this book, in reason or from faith in revelation? Does it come, which one does it come from? Locke's explication of the opening of St. Paul's epistle to the Romans provides one way to solve this conundrum. That's my claim. Uh, so St. Paul bases the universality of culpability on the claim that uh, we all know, right, that, that those things which may be known of God are manifest to all mankind. For God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So Locke interprets this capacity to gain knowledge of God from creation. This capacity is for him human reason. In his notes on this passage, Locke describes the rule of right prescribed to mankind by God as, quote, the judgment of God. And here he's translating ta dakaio matheu, which is that rule of rectitude which God had given to mankind in giving them reason. He elucidates further the meaning of this phrase by comparing it with the rectitude of the law, ta dakaio matu no mu, which signifies that part of the revealed law that God gave to Moses that the Gentiles were able to access without the aid of revelation. Within this portion of the revealed law, Locke includes all those precepts of the natural and eternal rule of rectitude, which function as promulgated law known to men by the light of reason, Jew and Gentile alike, that came from God and was made by him. Locke also calls this law a rule of morality. So again, not just self-preservation, but a law, a rule of morality that the Gentile world did acknowledge because it was laid within the discovery of their reason, without the aid of revelation. So this, this Greek phrase, dekaioma tutheu, Locke says about it, that um, if we carefully read, quote-unquote, the passages of St. Paul, uh, in, where he includes it, and he lists nine of them uh, Locke finds, uh, we shall find that he used it everywhere in the same sense, namely for that rule which, if complied with, justified or rendered perfect the person or thing it referred to, unquote. Sounds like a moral law. Locke compiles nine examples from throughout the New Testament to corroborate his claim that the Christian doctrine is that, quote, there is one and the same rule of rectitude set to the actions of all mankind, Jews, Gentiles, and Christians, and that failing of a complete obedience to it in every tittle makes a man unrighteous, the consequence whereof is death, unquote. As Locke notes, this indictment of all mankind is the ground for the good news of the gospel, whereby Jews and Gentiles alike may be, made, may be saved by belief in Jesus Christ, quote, their faith being accounted to them for righteousness, unquote. Thus, the essence of the law of nature is the rule of right or condition of righteousness that God established as an objective standard for all mankind. 
Okay, so how do we come to know this standard? That this is, this is, this is a key question. Okay, at least three times in Locke's paraphrase and notes on the first two chapters of the Epistle to the Romans, he claims that St. Paul's principal aim in the Epistle is to establish an equality of guilt between the Gentiles and the Jews, for whom likewise there is equal access to salvation through Jesus Christ. To convey this fact persuasively to his Jewish audience, this is Locke surmising about Paul, the, the apostle weaves a, quote, secret comparison, unquote, of the Gentiles and the Jews in the first chapter. St. Paul concludes from this comparison, as Locke paraphrases, that, quote, those that have sinned without having the positive law of God, namely the Gentiles, shall perish without the law, and those who have sinned being under the law, the Jews, shall be judged by this law. This is to say that having a more direct access to the knowledge of the law through revelation is inadequate. It is an inadequate advantage, rather, to the Jewish people, since the bare hearers of the law are not thereby just or righteous in the sight of God, but the doers of the law, they who exactly perform all that is commanded in it, shall be justified. Since, quote, the Gentiles were without excuse, unquote, to claim innocency on account of not knowing the law of Moses... It is necessary to discover by what means the Gentiles are said to be able to know that law of nature, that rule of right, without the aid of revelation. <clears throat> Quote, God made himself known to the Gentiles, Locke paraphrases here St. Paul, by legible characters of his being and power visible in the works of creation, unquote. And so by means of sense perception, and quote, the light of reason, God expected them to have discerned and submitted to his Quote, natural rule of rectitude. Paraphrasing St. Paul, Locke writes, Because God, in a clear manifestation of himself amongst them, has laid before them, ever since the creation of the world, his divine nature and eternal power, so that what is to be known of his invisible being might be clearly discovered and understood from the visible beauty, order, and operations, observable in the constitution and parts of the universe, by all those that would cast their regards and apply their minds that way, insomuch that they are utterly without excuse. Now, in a footnote on this passage about the attributes of God, explaining his paraphrase, Locke says that, quote, if they are minded, they are seen. The invisible things of God lie within the reach and discovery of men's reason and understandings, but yet they must exercise their faculties and employ their minds about them, unquote. Uh, from this explanation, it seems that Locke is reversing the normal order of cognition from sense perception to contemplation that he describes in his essay concerning human understanding. And it seems probable that by are minded, right, if they are minded, they are seen. Locke seems to mean something closer to the King James translation of Romans 8.5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit, unquote. That is to say, one must first have a care or a desire to turn one's eyes and mind, even with a degree of expectation of satisfaction, toward that which at first one cannot see. Another way to express this thought is that one must first exercise one's faculties in faith as if one will be successful, and then the invisible things are illuminated. Thus it is apparent that, the man, that man first recognizes the law of nature when he fulfills his duty as a rational creature to wonder at his own existence in creation 
to lift his eyes in expectation, as it were, to see his creator that might and indeed should exist, though he have no prior knowledge of him or certain assurance of his existence. Once thus minded, the light of nature illuminates the law of nature, and man is able through the exercise of his senses and reason to see as visible the hitherto invisible. It's evident from the passages above that that one must use one's eyes and mind to cognize the natural law, since it is not a thing known innately from birth. As noted above, Locke writes that what is known of God is seen in the visible beauty and order and operations, which are observable in nature. Further, he paraphrases that a reprobate mind, in Romans 1.28, he calls that an unsearching and unjudicious mind. That's his paraphrase. And Locke loosely paraphrases Romans 1.9, where St. Paul says he serves God with my spirit, as with the whole bent of my mind. And interestingly, the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, uh, does not have a sort of corresponding uh, meaning that the, the Latin word anima does with animus, where anima is spirit and animus is mind. Uh, pneuma doesn't have a, a similar uh, meaning like that. Uh, so these renderings su- uh, suggest that Locke believed that the eyes and the mind play a major role in discovering the law of nature that he must have thought was underemphasized in the King James Version. Uh, the, the simultaneity that Locke describes here of, of using your faculties in faith so that one can see a thing one knew not to be there to begin with um, is described in this cryptic Latin phrase that Locke just inserts into a footnote uh, in Romans one twenty eight to describe uh, the reverse process. It's non explorantibus permisit mentem non exploratricem, which I loosely render as since they were not seeking to know, he allowed their mind to become a thing that does not seek to know. If the law of nature is equally accessible through the mind and eyes to all mankind, then it seems perhaps superfluous for God to have to reveal it through the Mosaic law to the Jews. And it's important to ask what advantage this revelation of the natural law was to them. The explanation of these quandaries reveals a key for understanding how men differ so much in their opinions of the law of nature, and the indispensable claim that despite this disparateness, all mankind is equally culpable for breaking the law of nature, the judgment of God. So it seems to me like if if one generation were to have lost the cognizance of this law of nature in the history of the world, then it would be reasonable to assume that God would have to supply for them a fixed written record of this standard, so that no matter how corrupted their eyes and minds might become, not one jot or one tittle of his law would in any wise pass away. And then if we look at the history of Israel, uh, God was able to send prophets back to the Jews to call them back to his law because there was a written copy of it that they could discover. And although the, the, the Jewish people were often too stubborn to return to it for very long, its fixed nature has proven to be for them the single greatest factor in retaining a Jewish identity throughout their history. As a symbol of identity and especially as a trans-historical standard of morality, the law of nature as revealed in the Mosaic Code has been a great advantage to the Jews. As St. Paul argues in Romans 2, however, blindness that results from willful idolatry rendered the Jews bare hearers of the law and, like the Gentiles, not doers of the law. Accordingly, if all mankind is to be pronounced guilty of not following what they do not comprehend, 
one would have to show that they were willing agents of their own incapacitation, both with regard to eyes and mind. Ignorantia juris non excusat. Ignorance of the law does not excuse. Uh, this point necessarily involves us in the discussion of the ancient argument between the relationship between acting right and thinking right, or moral and intellectual virtue. Uh, I'll just summarize this part of my paper. You can go back and, and, and read it if you like. But um, Aristotle's description of, the, of, uh, of all virtues requires this interdependence between knowing a kind of prudence of how to use a virtue and then also building up of the habit of it. And he has this interesting example with, uh, with prudence, where he looks at the etymology of sophrosune and in a um, <laughs> glutamous way, shows that um, what you see there is, is uh, phronesis uh, and sozane, something that preserves temperance. Um, and and that's, you have to have that for prudence. And so sozane and phrosune gives you a kind of prudence. Um, but the, the, anyway, the point is that there's an in interdependence between acting right and thinking right. And one corruption leads to the corruption of the other, and likewise, uh, uh, the virtue of one leads to a building up of the virtue of the other. So I will skip down a bit. Um, so if some men are seemingly ignorant of the law of nature, perhaps even raised entirely in such a society uh, where they've been, it's become so corrupt that they're the, the vice uh, of, uh, of moral, moral vice and intellectual vice have, have worked together to create uh, an almost complete uh, uh, ignorance of the law. And, and Locke mentions that there are whole nations that, that have done this. And, and as I mentioned before with the Richard Hooker quote, uh, Hooker seems to believe the, the same. Um, how can they be blameworthy? How can they be blameworthy? Uh, Locke addresses this question in another work that's unpublished. Um, there were notes concerning the law of nature, which is another one I brought because I, most people don't cite it or, or really know that it exists. Um, and uh, where he says that God will require of every man according to what a man hath and not according to what he hath not. Uh, but St. Paul does not equivocate where he records that the Gentiles, all of them, although knowing the judgment of God, which Locke paraphrases as, Though they acknowledge the rule of right prescribed them by God and discovered by the light of nature, do those very things oops, do those very things contrary to it anyway. Thus the Gentiles had knowledge that, they were, that what they were doing was wrong, but they did it anyway. And as Jesus explains to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, this is the condemnation. That, the, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, and because their deeds were evil. For every man that doth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Locke calls man's capacity for reason with which he is made to see the law of nature. He calls it the candle of the Lord. And, and yet the candle represents only a potentiality. If man prefers the darkness because his deeds are evil... His candle will remain under a bushel, benighted by his own hand. As the psalmist writes of God and his law, with thee is the fountain of light, and in thy light shall we see light. Consequently, when men indulge in acts contrary to his law, God allows them to persist in it, giving them, quote, up to shameful and infamous lusts and passions, unquote, for which they receive in themselves a fit reward of their error namely idolatry, uh, which, uh, which Locke renders as a false image of a no-god, 
no dash god, of a no god. Uh, it corrupts their minds from knowing the law of nature in the future. And this biblical and Lockean explanation of self-creation and character development through man's own deliberate choices accords with Aristotle's description of choice as a refinement of desire by the thinking involved in deliberation. So then that means that the effects of breaking the law of nature include its own punishment, a, a, a gradual uh, loss of ability to cognize this law of nature. So the fundamental consequence then of departing from the law of nature, according to St. Paul, Locke, and Aristotle, to throw Aristotle in there, <laughs> is gradually a warped character that renders a person or an entire people more beastly and generally less able to reason rightly. And this natural punishment, however, is exacerbated by the decrease in one's ability to perceive the law of nature and one's gradually growing distance from it. And this is correlative with one's increasing distance uh, with respect to one's choices, as the more poor choices that we're making, the greater our distances from our knowledge of that thing. Consequently, however, as unsatisfactorily as this may seem, the best way to understand the law of nature is to keep it within observable distance, that is, to practice it. And following St. Paul's own words very closely, Locke repeatedly describes in his own words, in his paraphrase, the internal effect of departing from the law of nature and God and God's law as a, quote, darkened heart and a hardness, quote, of the heart. And here, it seems that Locke contradicts his well-known denial of the possibility of innate knowledge by suggesting that one is indeed born with an awareness of the law of nature in one's heart, not his mind. Uh, in fact, Strauss points out in this Questions Concerning the Law of Nature, an essay he wrote on it, that Locke claims in several different places that such knowledge is and is not implanted in mankind innately. Uh, there seems to be no perfect way to square Locke's circle of reasonings on this point, and Strauss ends his essay without even trying. Um, it seems Strauss there is just trying to show that Locke is contradictory and then leave it at that. But... I think there's a way to explain this in a way that's both reasonable and consistent with the larger argument above. Uh, in both St. Paul's and Locke's descriptions of the heart, right, it's the organ that represents a person's character. And thus, there is no, perhaps no innate knowledge implanted in, in man's heart by God. And yet, there may be a kind of innate knowledge implanted in man's heart by man himself. Accordingly, Locke amends the, the King James translation of, quote, they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened, to they became vain in their reasonings and their foolish understandings were darkened. The consequence of acting contrary to the law of nature is that one grows less and less aware of the existence of such a law. And this analogy came to me yesterday, and I think it might be helpful. We'll see. Y'all can help me out. But I was thinking of a YouTube feed Right? It, it, you've got your, the video you're watching and then the videos that are suggested there right on the side. Now, what determines those videos on the side, right? An algorithm composed of what? Your previous choices. And if you don't hit the right button, right, it will, it will start playing the next, the next video right away. And I've heard of studies where there's actual significant influence of, of people's opinions being influenced by that next video, which they didn't choose, right? And yet they did. Now, Mark Zuckerberg or whoever probably had something to do with it too. But on some level, your own choices are determining 
What's on? And it's haunting to think about that, right? Every choice I'm making is adding to that algorithm, which is determining the choices that I'm likely to make based upon the, the ones that are right there that are grabbable and suggesting new ones to me that are adjacent to the previous choices that I've made. So that's my attempt to try and square this circle. Uh, in spite of such possible self-induced ignorance, it is still right for God to judge mankind guilty. For even with extra manifest signs to prove God's existence, man will persist in his rebellion. Locke explains in The Reasonableness of Christianity that before the advent of Christianity, civil laws and philosophers were largely ineffectual at carrying morality to a higher pitch because the greater part of mankind needs divine rewards and punishments to be induced to change their behavior. Furthermore, Locke notes that the immortality of the soul is a necessary supposition for the law of nature to have effect, for law will have no force where there is no punishment. But, but belief in the law of nature and its efficacy are not the same thing, right? Uh, we know that um, just because there's a knowledge even of an eternal punishment, mankind, I myself, uh, will still persist in evil, knowing uh, that what I'm doing is, is, uh, is contrary to the law of God and worthy of damnation. Um, and Jesus says, of course, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. As further support for this claim, the, the greatest liberty that Locke takes in his paraphrase of St. Paul in the first and second chapters of Romans is in Romans one thirty-two, where Locke changes uh, those who, knowing the, the, the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Locke changes that to though who they acknowledge the, the rule of right prescribed them by God and discovered by the light of nature, did not yet understand that those who did such things were worthy of death. Just, just inserting a knot there. Um, now, he explains that the, his translation, quote, will probably be thought the more genuine by those who can hardly suppose that St. Paul should affirm that the Gentile world did know that he who offended against any of the directions of this natural rule of rectitude taught or discoverable by the light of reason was worthy of eternal death. Locke thinks that just improbable. This is an example of, 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 of him as a philosopher looking at scripture and reading it. Um, and he does cite, uh, as you can find in my, in my paper, he does cite several um, different other manuscripts where he says this is consistent. And he cites some church fathers on this point too. So hold it out there. Um, Marvin Vincent, a New Testament scholar, comments that uh, St. Paul's word choice in Romans 1.26, where he describes God's judgment on the Gentiles, quote, that God gave them up to vile affections, suggests that the divine punishment was the more severe in that they were given over to a condition and not merely to an evil desire. And as Locke denies that eternal punishment, right, for breaking the law of nature is discernible by the light of nature, one must conclude that he believed that all mankind was guilty before God for breaking his law in spite of the fact that they themselves grew more ignorant of the fact of their guilt as well as the consequences of their guilt. So, so Locke's still orthodox in that sense there. Uh, and this seems like a harsh punishment, but Locke points out that it was such a law as the purity of God's nature required. And then I'll, I'm concluding here. Um, this reading of St. Paul seems rather grim, but it's still orthodox and consistent with Locke's synopsis of the condition of men generally vis-a-vis -vis the law of nature, 
and reminiscent of John 3 above, uh, Strauss notes that no one can ignore the, the natural law except him who loves blindness and darkness. There's an affection for ignorance of the, of the law. Furthermore, uh, Locke specifies that Locke does not say that the existence of a god is evident to all men. He knew or believed to know whole nations of atheists, but only that it is evident to all morally concerned men, those who have still practiced and tried to pursue and had that care to, 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 uh, to seek a, a man's purpose through philosophy. And those who actually care to seek the law of God, uh, this reminded me a lot of C.S. Lewis's argument in The Abolition of Man, that the, the law of nature functions as an objective standard of moral values, but as Lewis argues, if we are to have values at all, quote, we must accept the ultimate platitudes of practical reasonings as having absolute validity, unquote. For the method of reasoning by which we evaluate anything, including the law of nature, is dependent on a faith in the reliability of reasoning to begin with. For the ancients, Lewis surmises, this faith was probably arrived at from simple reflection upon the agricultural rhythm in which they lived, or even of their physiology, right, eyes and mind uh, working together. Regardless of how men discovered it originally, however, what is important is to mark that, quote, only those who are practicing the law of nature will understand it, quoting from Lewis again, and, and that if you choose to denounce its validity, you, quote, destroy the bases of your own criticism as well as the thing criticized, unquote. So rather than being a dreadful, draconian judgment, living in accordance with God's law, um, ultimately through conformity to Jesus Christ, is a path not only to happiness, but it's a path to our, our being, our natural selves, our imperfect characters, are marred by our choices and habits, contrary to the law of nature. And they are, in fact, unnatural, because they are not what we were intended to become. As a rebel from his own nature, man seeks to be original in some existential sense, but as Lewis mentions, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Rather, it is by submitting to our true nature according to the law of nature that we will become our true selves. And, quote, the more we get what we call now ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Locke explains that given man's regular failure to live in accordance with the law of nature, man's salvation ultimately depends upon a knowledge not gained through the light of nature. Thus, the authors of the New Testament wrote, he says, quote, to induce men into a belief of this proposition, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, which if they believed, they should have life, unquote. But this was not knowledge that mankind ever could have been expected to know from nature. This message has ever been called, quote, the good news. And through it, man is reconciled to himself as well as to God, uh, as I mentioned, Locke, um, this was the last thing that he wrote uh, as, a, as a dying old man uh, the year before he died. Uh, and he says that he originally wrote it for his own spiritual edification only. And his biographer surmises that Locke turned to Paul's epistles, stung perhaps by John Edwards' remark that the author of The Reasonableness of Christianity seemed to know only the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, and Locke only considered publishing his commentaries at the behest of, quote, some very sober, judicious Christians, divines of the Church of England, who claimed that Locke's commentary, quote, had enabled them to understand the epistles much better than they did before, unquote. 
And although Locke allowed these private reflections to be published after his death, uh, being asked by some who were very desirous it should be printed and were persuaded that it will be of great use to religion in giving the true sense of those epistles, he advised his writers not to follow mine or any man's interpretation without careful reflection. Contrary to the idea that Locke was, didn't believe in original sin, uh, I, I find this pretty revealing. Uh, he, he says, we must remember that, quote, we are all men, liable to errors, infected with them, unquote. And he writes in the introductory essay, uh, that phrase is from the introductory essay, Nevertheless, uh, though man's reason is his only star and compass, famous phrase from his first treatise, um, though that thing be so universally imperfect in the end, Locke's faith, to me, still seems to rest sufficiently on the hand that made the stars and the hand that guides the needle of the compass to its true right and divine pole, the contemplation of the moral law of nature and of nature's God and the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you. If you enjoy this free audio from the Davenant Institute, please like, subscribe and share. We invite you also to join our email list if you want to hear about upcoming events, new content or course offerings at Davenant Hall. Links are in the description.